Daniel, Pastor Daniel, finished our summer sermon series last week, uh, Rooted uh, Foundations of Our Faith, and uh, in a few weeks we'll be launching our new fall series, but in the meantime, I thought it'd be fitting for us to take a pit stop in the book of Hebrews. Uh, And the reason I think that Hebrews is so fitting is because the book of Hebrews uniquely bridges the Old and New Testament. Uh, Nowhere else in the Bible do we see such an extensive explanation of how the Old and New Testaments are woven together. Uh, And nowhere else do we see how uh, understanding a book like Genesis even more so illumines the message of Jesus Christ. And so I hope, hope and pray that this sermon this morning would be a subtle reminder of why we desperately need the Old Testament in order for us to fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So turn with me now in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, and as you're turning, uh, I want to give you a little introduction of this text. We're going to be reading verses 15 through 28. Um, As you'll quickly notice, our text begins with the word therefore, uh, which seems like a not a very wise place to start a sermon, Uh, but the reason we do that is because the book of Hebrews, much like the book of Romans, is one continuous argument. Uh, from beginning to end. So no matter where you start, there is at least an implied therefore attached to the text. So we start in the middle here, though, because there is such a uh, condensed and beautiful section of the book of Hebrews. Uh, It's this really meaty chunk of scripture. It's truly rich, wonderful text, and it it really highlights the main message of the book of Hebrews. So that's what we're going to read. Enough introduction you guys would now stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. This is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, He being Jesus, so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, 
son of Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of men, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is God's word. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a glorious, beautiful piece of scripture, your word given to us so that we might know you more, so that we might know how to live. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And be seated. While I was in seminary, I had the privilege of partnering with a nonprofit organization that enabled me to raise support to work part-time as a youth minister. Not long after I started working with this organization, some conflict arose. Everybody loves conflict. Now, in my opinion, I had made an honest mistake, but in the opinion of my supervisors, I had breached my contract. And so I, when I was informed of this, quickly called up the CEO of this organization to seek to explain myself. And basically, after a short conversation, the CEO called me a liar. Uh, He told me that ultimately I did not have the kind of character that they were looking for in their organization, and I was terminated. I was fired. Only time I've ever been fired in my life. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I was devastated. I had never before had my character challenged like this, uh, and it hurt really bad. It was really hard. But the surprising thing in all this was was that my primary emotion, the thing that came forth the most, was not hurt or sadness, but rage. I was outraged that this man had the audacity to challenge my character like this. How dare he? And yet it was in that rage that God showed up. God started probing me with the question, Timothy, why are you so angry? What are you so mad about? As I began to look inside, I began to realize that I could not stand the thought of someone thinking that I was not a godly man. I couldn't handle the fact that someone would see me as unrighteous, evil. You see, my identity was so wrapped up in my perceived godliness, in people thinking that I was righteous, that I was good, that I was a nice guy. And that was being taken from me, and it made me angry. And church, the main thing that I want you to see here is that I was operating out of a profound misconception. I was believing that I really am a godly person, that I'm really not that bad, that my sin is not that big of a deal. But the truth is that I'm, in fact, far from godly. And I think if we're honest, we would have to admit that we all often believe this lie, that we are, in fact, really good people. Derek Webb, singer-songwriter, says it this way. If you confess, oh, I know I'm sinful, Scripture tells me we've all fallen short, right? And that's me too, man. I'm sinful. But you can't honestly put your finger on one sin you've committed all day because your view of sin 
has become nothing more than this cultural hiding game, then you're not experiencing real joy. Because if all I confess is a knowledge of how sin has affected me, but not any of my real sins, if I don't really know that I'm sinful, then I don't truly know, and I'm not truly encouraged by the fact that I've been saved. Because saved from what? If I'm not really sinful, then what's the big deal? What's the good news? It's just news. It's convicting. Church, the foundation of this passage and of the whole Bible is that we are profoundly sinful. Not hypothetically or theoretically sinful, but actually and extravagantly sinful. And from that foundation, the author of Hebrews seeks to answer the massively important follow-up question, the question of how are we who are filthy because of our sin to be cleansed? That's the big question here, isn't it? How are we who are filthy because of our sin to be cleansed? And the way the author of Hebrews chooses to answer that question is to tell a three-part story. First chapter is called Old Covenant Blood. The second chapter is called New Covenant Blood. And the final chapter of the story is called Freedom in the Blood. Old Covenant Blood, New Covenant Blood, Freedom in the Blood. In the blood. Let's begin with chapter 1. Old Covenant Blood. Right off the bat, I want to clarify some of my wording. When the Bible refers to the Old Covenant, it's referring to all of the covenants, the, the pacts, the promises, the contracts that God made with His people before Christ came. And as many of you know, we are in fact those who live under the New Covenant. The covenant that Christ inaugurated with His coming. But what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that in order for us to truly grasp the weight of our current position as members of the new covenant, we must take a trip down memory lane and look back at God's old covenant cleansing methods. We have to look at how those in the old covenant time who were filthy because of their sin were to be cleansed. And there are two primary aspects of God's old covenant cleansing methods that our text highlights. Look with me at the text, verse 18. Verse 18 says that not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So in order for old covenant Jews to be made ceremonially clean, to be made clean and have access, although limited to God, a bloody death was required. Bloody death was required. Secondly, verse 19 through 21 Shows us that not only was a bloody death required, but the Jewish people had to actually come in contact with that blood. It says in verse 19 that Moses actually sprinkled the people with the blood of calves. Can you imagine how our church attendance would drop if at the end of the sermon I said, All right, come forward, and I sprinkled cow's blood all over the whole congregation. Anybody coming back next week? I don't think so. But that's what they did. They had to come in contact with the blood to be cleansed. Now, these concepts obviously don't just come out of nowhere, but they're rooted in the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus, we get the why. Why was this bloody death required, and why did the people have to come in contact with the sin, with the blood? Listen to verses 10 through 12 of Leviticus chapter 17. It says, Any Israelite or any alien living among them who eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israel, Israelites, none of you may eat blood 
nor may any alien living among you eat blood. So God's message here from the beginning is that blood is massively important. It's not something that we play around with. And the reason, verse 11, is that the life of the creature is in the blood. Without blood, we cannot survive. We die. It's pretty simple biology. And so God, the creator of the universe, chose this substance, blood, that is essential for life to be the means, verse 11, to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So if I were to summarize what God's saying here in Leviticus, he's saying, don't drink the blood. It's the blood that is special. It is for forgiveness. Church, I want you to make a middle note of this point, and we'll come back to it later. God is saying, don't drink the blood. Which brings us to the second chapter of our story, New Covenant Blood. This is our current context. The climax that the author of Hebrew has, has been building up to for the last two chapters is that the old sacrificial system, the old blood that I just described to you, is, no longer applies to us. As mentioned in verse 15, he says that he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus Christ has replaced the old covenant cleansing methods by his inauguration of a new covenant. And there are, therefore, our relationship to the blood has radically changed. This is good news. I want to highlight three differences seen in the text between our relationship to the blood and the ancient Jewish Old Covenant relationship to the blood. The three, the three differences that we see here is first in terms of place, second in terms of perpetuity, which just means how long it lasts, and then, and then thirdly in terms of the provider. Place, perpetuity, and provider. Three Ps. You like that? Place. The author of Hebrews wants to make a distinction between where the high priest's sacrifices were made and where Jesus' sacrifice was made. We see in verse 23 that the tabernacle and all that was in it was merely a copy. The tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly things. So the ancient Jews were supposed to see the tabernacle as a picture, a signpost pointing to heaven. God created this replica of heaven that they would use and they would come to and dwell and enjoy and the Jews would get this beautiful picture of what is to come. And yet the Jews knew that this was temporary. This was not the ultimate reality. I used to live in Orlando. Some of you may know this, but there is actually a replica of ancient Israel uh, in Orlando. It, take, it exists inside a Christian theme park, which actually deserves a whole sermon in and of itself, a Christian theme park called the Holy Land Experience. And they have created a replica of ancient Jerusalem. I've actually heard it's pretty cool. I've never been... But it's a replica. It's not the real thing. And it would be crazy to think if you went to the Holy Land experience that you could say, oh yeah, now I've experienced ancient Jerusalem. I know what it's like. It would be ludicrous. In the same light, Jesus, in verse 24, says that he did not enter into a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered into heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. This is huge. Jesus didn't enter into a replica or a metaphorical place. He went into heaven itself, into the very presence of God, to give the death and blood that was required for our sins. So that's the first difference in terms of place. Secondly, in terms of perpetuity, look at verse 25. It says, Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters. But verse 26 says, But he has now appeared once for all to do away with sin. 
Pretty obvious but massive difference here. The high priest entered in every year because his sacrifice was not perpetually sufficient. It had a shelf life, if you will. When the Day of Atonement came back around, his previous sacrifice had gone bad. It was no longer effective. He had to go in again and atone for the sins of the people and for himself. But Jesus enters into heaven one time. His death on the cross is perpetually sufficient. His atoning work is everlasting. This is why Jesus was able to cry out from the cross to telestai. It is finished, paid in full. The debt was utterly abolished and the power of sin and death was forever destroyed. Lastly, we see there's a major difference in the old and new system in the provider of the blood, the blood donor, if you will. Verse 25 points out how the high priest offered blood that was not his own. God clearly allowed this temporary, temporarily to satisfy the requirements of sin, but it could never completely conquer sin and death. It could never completely reconcile us to God. In order for that to happen, the death of a man was required. And not just any man, a sinless man, a man with no fault in him. Listen to 1 Peter, verse 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's what ultimately was required, the precious blood of the only one who ever lived without blemish, Jesus Christ. So three main differences here in the old and new system, the new system that we now live in. Jesus went into heaven itself, not a copy of heaven. His sacrifice was once and for all, and his power came from the fact that it was his own precious blood that he offered and not the blood of an animal. Which brings us now to the aha moment of the book of Hebrews. This is a massive biblical truth that the whole text has been driving to. The author of Hebrews is declaring, he's declaring to Christians, he says, Christian, because of the blood of Christ, you are clean. Did you hear that, church? He says, Christian, because of the blood of Christ, you are clean. And there are two massive applications of this truth. A message to the lost and a message to the found. For those of you who are currently here, and do not associate with the name Christian, we are so glad that you're here. I hope that you keep coming back. Please know that you are always welcome here. Please come and wrestle with what is being said. But if that is you, if you are here today and you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, this text should terrify you. Because what the text is making plain is that we are all dirty because of our sin. We all carry this debt and we cannot rid ourselves of it. Martin Luther once said, either sin is lying with you on your shoulders or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, if it is lying on your back, you are lost. But if it is resting on Christ, you are free and you will be saved. Now, you choose what you want. May this text be an awakening, awakening declaration of the condemnation that is due to all of us because of our sin. There's also a message here to the found. For those of us who 
do see Christ and embrace Him as our Lord and Savior. What this text says to those of us is, is that you are in fact clean. Christ's work on the cross was once and for all, and you can stop trying to clean yourself. Amen? What does that mean, to clean yourself? This often looks like as we try to vindicate ourselves, we try to earn God's love through our performance. One of my seminary professors used to say that we are all innately vindication sucks. We don't feel worthy, worthy or valuable, but instead we're drowning in guilt and shame. And therefore we are perpetually groping for something, some sort of vindication from others. Something that will destroy these feelings of inadequacy and make us to feel whole again. I personally wrestle with this every time I step into the pulpit. Every time. Because I oftentimes simply believe that if I'm a good pastor, if I preach a good sermon, if you guys like me, then I'll be worthy and valuable. I'm seeking to cleanse myself, to vindicate myself through you. It's gross, isn't it? That's what, but that's what we do. What does it look like in your life? Do you try to suck vindication from your kids? That if your kids are obedient, well-behaved, well-dressed, and if you have a good... Christian family, then you'll feel worthy and have value? Do you try to suck your vindication from your grades? If I make the A, B, honor roll, or I finish in the top of my class, then I'll have worth. Do you try to suck your vindication from making mommy and daddy happy? Uh, from doing the dishes and making your bed and cleaning your room? If you do that and mommy and daddy are happy, then I'll be valuable. Do you try to suck your vindication from your personal piety? This is a big one around here. I do my quiet time every day and memorize scripture and share my faith regularly. Then God will see me as valuable and I'll have worth. All these behaviors are good, obviously, but they will never, never satisfy your longings for worth and value and they will never make you clean. But there's hope, church, there's hope. For those of us who are in Christ, we are clean. Because of Christ's blood and the immeasurable power to take away our sins and make us white as snow, we are clean. In spite of all our filthy sin and our failures and shortcomings, we are clean. We are valuable, not because of our performance, but because God loves us enough to send His own Son. And therefore, we are now clothed in His righteousness. The blood is sufficient. A few years ago, my wife and I were at a restaurant and we finished our meal and we got ready to pay for our check and the waiter started acting kind of weird. We asked for the check and he said, don't worry about it. You guys don't have a bill. Stacy and I thought he was joking, so we waited a little while until he came back and we asked for our check again. Again, he said, don't worry about it. He said, it's been taken care of. So we got up and left the restaurant and didn't pay our bill. Now what ended up happening is Stacy's cousins happened to be in another part of the restaurant. They intercepted our waiter and paid for our dinner. But we had no idea. But our debt had been taken care of. Church, your debt has been paid in full by Christ's death on the cross. Stop trying to find your vindication elsewhere and rest in your cleanliness. Amen? Amen. 
The author of Hebrews closes this section by talking about the future, freedom in the blood. Verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's reminding us here that Christ is coming back. He's going to finish what he started. But why would he do that? Sometimes when I leave my kids in the morning to come to the office, they get upset. Uh, and I hate it because I don't fully know what they're thinking. Are they thinking, does Daddy still love me? Is he mad at me? Is that why he's leaving? Did I do something wrong that's causing him to go? When they're doing that, I try to assure them that as best I can that I do love them and I just have to go to work and I'll be back soon. But when I get home, I, what I don't do is I don't go to my wife and ask for a report on how all my kids behave. And if they behaved well enough, then I come and, and love on them and encourage them and, and cherish them. No, I, I, when I come through the door, I scoop them up in my arms and I love on them and I hug on them and kiss them because they're my kids. So my son and daughters. The author of Hebrews points to the second coming to remind us that Christ is coming back. He's coming back for those of us who've been washed in his blood. Those of us who are eagerly awaiting for him. And he promises to scoop us up in his arms and cover us with kisses simply because we are his sons and daughters. And church, this, this truth should bring great freedom to us. We don't have to live in fear anymore. We don't have to live in the fear that we haven't done enough, that we haven't performed well enough for Christ to come back to us. We are His, and therefore we are free to worship and enjoy Him. And it's in that vein that I want to bring this text full circle. Think back to the verse in Leviticus that I shared with you that I told was the foundation for this text. I'll read it again. Any Israelite or any alien living among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats the blood and will cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. I told you to remember that God tells Israel, he's telling them that the blood is special, it's for atonement, don't drink the blood. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes and he plays a very different tune, doesn't he? You see, he reverses the command. He's able to do this because he's dealt with our filth and dealt with our sin through his blood. So he doesn't shun us from the blood that was necessary for atonement anymore. He says, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat. Israel was told to stay away from the sacrifice. Jesus says, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take, drink. In a few moments, we're going to partake of the table. And it's this table that reminds us that the blood has been poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's this table that is set apart for those of us who have been made clean by his blood. And it's this table that exists for us to come and remember the blood and to give thanks. So as you come to the table, would you heed the words of Jesus Christ and freely drink of the fountain of his blood, remembering and giving thanks to the Lamb who was slain to make you clean. Amen? Amen. I've titled this sermon, There is a Fountain, in honor of the William Cooper hymn, 
is familiar to many of us, and we're going to sing it in just a moment. But some of you may not know, shortly before Cooper composed this hymn, he contracted a mental illness, and, and several tribes tried to kill himself, tried to commit suicide. And as you can imagine, after these failed suicide attempts, he was drowning in even more guilt and shame. But something happened shortly after. Cooper encountered Jesus in a profoundly new way. And Cooper realized that Jesus' blood could cover the greatest guilt and shame, even his own attempts to kill himself. And so he, in light of that, composed this hymn. I don't know what kind of guilt and shame you are carrying around with you today, but church, may this hymn encourage you to plunge deep into the fountain of the blood of the Lamb. Stop trying to clean yourself and embrace the reality that you are, in fact, clean. I want to read these words to you and I invite you to meditate on them as we prepare to sing them in a moment. This is the hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood and lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Lord, I believe thou hast prepared, unworthy though I be, for me a blood-brought free reward, a golden harp for me. Tis strung and tuned for endless years, and formed by power divine, to sound in God the Father's ear, no other name but thine. Let's pray.